Welcome to the Global Missions Inc. podcast. Today's episode features David Luff with a message on God's vision for you. Proverbs 29 and 18, and I'm reading this from the Passion Translation. From time to time, I will refer to this particular translation because sometimes I just like the way it says it. Proverbs 29 and 18 says, where there is no clear prophetic vision People quickly wander away. But when you follow the revelation of the word, heaven's bliss fills your soul. Much of the Bible is about describing for us a vision so that we will not go astray. If you look up the word vision in the dictionary, this is what mine said anyway. It's the act or power of anticipating that which will or may come to be. Now, I'm sure all of you have a vision for your life, what you envision it being like. For you young men, it probably at least includes having the perfect job, buying your dream car, marrying a beautiful girl, and living happily ever after. For you young ladies in these days, it probably includes having the perfect job, buying your dream car, marrying a beautiful man, and living happily ever after. Now, of course, I'm being somewhat facetious there because I know that you're much more practical and have much more important uh, parts of your vision than that. But tonight, I want to try to interest you in a vision that I believe God wants to give you for your life that goes beyond the natural boundaries of this present age and is anchored in the age to come. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 28 and 29, and I'm reading from the New English translation, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, in the age when all things are renewed, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And whoever has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. I believe the age that he that he is talking about, which is to come, is the millennial kingdom. And renewed means that all things are restored to the way that they were in the beginning. Now, I know that you're young and you have your whole lives ahead of you. You're busy preparing for life in this world as well you should. But in the midst of all this earthly living, I want you to have a vision and an expectation of the coming age, the age of the kingdom of heaven and your role in it. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11 says that God has put eternity in the hearts of the sons of men. 
I also believe that that means that in some way God has put into all of our hearts a longing for his kingdom. And our hearts will never really fully be satisfied until we find ourselves in the kingdom of God. For most Christians, heaven is the ultimate destination of their Christian walk. Most consider heaven as a realm somewhere beyond the clouds that we cannot see with our natural eyes. And that is where they will spend eternity. This is not at all a bad vision. In fact, it's quite beautiful. But I want more, and I want you to want more too. I want to see heaven, but I want to see it when the kingdom of heaven comes here on the earth. I want to see the earth when Jesus restores everything to the way it was in the beginning. Heaven may be a rest stop for me along the way, but I want to come back for the kingdom that Christ sets up on the earth. I want to see the calf and the young lion and the fatling together led by a little child. I want to see the earth full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Don't you? I'd like to take you back in time when Jesus was teaching the multitudes in the cities of Galilee. In one such place, he was talking to the people about John the Baptist. And in Matthew chapter 11, 7 through 12, this is what it says. As they departed... Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Matthew 11, 7 through 12 from the New King James Version. Now, I'd like to read that last verse 12 from the NIV. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. Now, verse 12 is an interesting verse. What is Jesus talking about using the word violence and violent? Well, let's read on a bit. In Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And then in Matthew 21, 31 through 32, Jesus said to them, and he was speaking to the Pharisees, 
Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. If you would permit me to say it this way, Jesus reminded the people in speaking about John that they didn't go for a nature walk in the desert to watch the wind blowing the reeds or to see some wealthy VIP fashion plate. No, they went to see a prophet, a firebrand, and more than a prophet. He was the one prophesied of by Malachi who would prepare the way for the Lord. Great multitudes of people poured out from all over the land of Judea and from the city of Jerusalem to hear the gospel of the kingdom preached, repenting of their sins and being baptized in the Jordan River. Even people who were thought of as never changing, such as prostitutes and tax collectors, were repenting and coming to John to be baptized. Wow, what a revival John started. People were excited by the gospel of the kingdom. It was as if they were pushing and elbowing their way into the kingdom. Jesus used the word picture of an invading army laying siege to a city. Obviously, the people were not entering by violence in the literal sense of the word, but they were adamant about their participation in the kingdom that both John and Jesus were preaching. Jesus demonstrated that kingdom uh, and what it means. He said the crippled walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised to life. Earnest Jews would have made the connection between what Jesus was preaching and the scriptures in the Old Testament. One such scripture is Isaiah 51.11. So the ransomed of the Lord shall return. And come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is what they were seeing demonstrated by Jesus as he preached and demonstrated what the kingdom of heaven was like. And there are many other scriptures that paint a picture of this coming kingdom in the Old Testament. Sometimes I wonder if we might need a revival like that in the church today. You know, most revivals in the past have begun with prayer and the leadership of young people who caught the vision of the kingdom. After all, Jesus was only 30 and John the Baptist was just a few months older than Jesus was. Young men. When we have had a year like 2020, it would be easy to have some doubts about what God is doing. But rather than give in to our fears and anxieties, we need to bring into sharper focus the prophetic vision of the kingdom of heaven, the church, and our calling to them. I want to read a passage of scripture from Ephesians chapter 1, 15 through 18. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. If I may paraphrase this message, Paul is saying, I am thanking God and praying continuously for you who have come to faith in Jesus, that our Heavenly Father will give to you the Holy Spirit that makes you wise and enables you to see the visible, past the visible, and into the realm of the invisible, and to see and understand the hope that he is calling you to, the glorious riches of the inheritance that awaits all who believe. Inheritance is something we're going to talk a bit about because it's something that is real and we it should be part of our life's vision. Paul can hardly contain his excitement and enthusiasm. The eyes of Paul's understanding had been enlightened and he knew something of the glorious riches of the inheritance that awaits the faithful. And he was praying constantly that we will see it too. He wants us to have that same vision that he has. What is this inheritance that Paul speaks so enthusiastically about? Well, Matthew chapter 25, verses 33 and 34, gives us some information about that. And it says, He will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Matthew 25, 33 and 34. And then in Luke 4, 42 and 43. Now when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place. And the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose, I have been sent. If you go through the scriptures and just do a a study on the reasons that Jesus came, there are several reasons that he, he came to save sinners. He came to testify to the truth. There are other things that he says he came for. But, you know, it seems to me that all of these things come back to support one ultimate and most important purpose that he came. And that was to preach to us, to introduce and to institute the kingdom of the heavens on the earth. And all these other reasons that he came support that particular thing. I would like to take the rest of my time to highlight a few key points about what I would call the three phases of the kingdom. Much could be said about each phase, but time does not permit. 
And I know you'd rather listen to Brian at his fireside chat coming up than to me anyway. So I'll only touch on a few high points of each phase. Now, these three phases, they're not apostles' doctrine or anything like that. It's just my way of trying to explain what I'm thinking. Phase one is entry. How do we enter into the kingdom? Number two is our walk once we get into the kingdom. And three is the a bit about the government of the kingdom. So let's talk about number one, entry. A Pharisee named Nicodemus came to Jesus wanting to know more about him. Did he come from God? It would seem that he must have come from God to be able to do the things he was doing. And so that's the way he approached Jesus. But this was Jesus's answer. He didn't answer Nicodemus's question at all. He said to him this, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. John three and three. It was as if Jesus was saying, back up, Nicodemus, slow down. You will not understand anything I say unless you are born again. You need to be able first to see the kingdom of God. And to do that, you must be born again. Nicodemus asked, how can a man enter into his mother's womb and be born a second time? And Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is from, born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. In order to even see the kingdom of God, to even be able to begin to to embrace this vision of, of what Jesus wants us to see, we must be born again. We must be saved. We must receive Christ by faith through the sacrifice of his blood upon the cross. That's what being born again really means. When you professed faith in Christ, you were born again, and you can never be unborn. You have entered into the kingdom of God. Now, what you do from here is up to you. Even when we were dead in trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, 5 and 6. If you are in Christ Jesus, and you are, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, then, as Romans 8 and 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You are free from the law of sin and death and are now able to walk after the Holy Spirit. One cannot be under condemnation and walk by the Spirit. For a Christian to walk under condemnation is to undervalue the efficacy of the cross. To try to walk 
still holding on to guilt and shame after you have been delivered from that is like trying to start a fire underwater. The harder you try, the more you fail. You entered into the kingdom of God through faith in Christ and being born again. Now let's talk about your walk in the kingdom. At the beginning of Jesus's ministry, he gave us the constitution of the kingdom as found in its most complete and extensive form in Matthew chapters five through seven. It's most often referred to as a sermon on the on the mount. I don't really like the term sermon because, you know, Jesus wrote this constitution, (laughs) this guide for living in his kingdom. He designed it and he was lovingly sharing it with us, teaching us about it. It is a constitution that governs life in the kingdom. It describes the lifestyle of a kingdom citizen. We don't have enough time to go into the Constitution in detail, but I would encourage you to read those chapters often because it lays out for us what kingdom living is like. And Jesus wants us to begin to learn how to live according to that kingdom constitution by the help of the Holy Spirit. So I'd like to just focus on one particular verse. Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14. In speaking of the kingdom, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, it's this point, you know, getting into the kingdom of God is really just a sovereign act of God that we believe in and accept. But from here on, it gets a bit more challenging because now God is going to begin to separate the sheep from the goats. He says the gate is narrow and the way is difficult. Well, what does that mean? Well, to me, it means the entry gate is narrow because Jesus is the only way to enter. No one comes to the Father except by him. And that's that's restrictive to many people. Many people can't accept that. So that's why that gate is narrow, because he is the only gate. He is the only way in. The walk is difficult Because it is a constricted path. Now, what does constricted mean? It means it will, it hems us in. It cramps our style. There is no room for any baggage of us having our own way or making room for the flesh and its selfish desires. There's only room for a single focus, and that is on the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus said, few find it. For many are called, but few are chosen. Matthew 22 and 14. And then from Matthew 6, 32 through 33. 
For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and and his righteousness. And all these other things shall be added to you. Jesus told us that if we try to save our life, we will lose it. But if we will lose our life for his sake, we will find it. But we will find it at the end of the constricted way. We enter the kingdom through spiritual birth. So we come as a babe in Christ and God gives us the Holy Spirit as a tutor to teach us how to walk by his leading. When Paul addressed the Corinthian church in his first letter to them, he called them babes in Christ. The Greek word for babe is napios. Because there were divisions and contentions among the people in the Corinthian church. The sad thing is, we can stay spiritual babes all our lives, but that's not what God wants for us. In Romans chapter 8, Paul speaks of the stages of growth that we go through if we're spiritually healthy. In verse 16, he says that the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The word for children there in the Greek is tikna. And the definition of tikna is a young child, not a baby, but a young child. Galatians 4 and 1 through 5 says this. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, remember that term because it's important, and we'll explain it here in just a minute. In verse 14 in the 8th chapter of Romans, he says, When we are being led by the Holy Spirit, we are sons of God. Well, if you look up the Greek word for sons there, it's huios. And it means a son or a daughter resembling the character of God more and more living by faith. Young people, I hope that's where we are in our walk. We are no longer, we're not babes anymore. We're not children anymore. But we are growing towards becoming full accredited sons of God. Little by little, line upon line. Here a little, there a little, learning obedience here, stumbling here, asking forgiveness, getting back on the path day by day by day, little by little. We're beginning to be changed into into the character of Jesus. Now, we go on in verse 23. He uses this term again, 
divine adoption as sons. And that Greek word, it combines the first, that, the, the, the son word with, with another part and it's per, pronounced, best I understand it, huiothesian in the Greek. And it means the placing of responsibility as a son. I want to read verses 22 and that verse 23 from the J.B. Phillips New Testament. It is plain to anyone with eyes to see that at the present time, all created life groans in a sort of universal travail. And it is plain, too, that we who have a foretaste of the spirit are in a state of painful tension while we wait for that redemption of our bodies, which will mean that at last we have realized our full sonship in him. And that term there for full sonship is huiothesian. And it means placing in a position of responsibility in the kingdom of God. You know, Paul was writing this letter to the Romans. And the Romans had a custom that he was aware of. And Paul was excellent at using terminology and cultural experiences of the people he was talking to to try to get across a spiritual point. And one of the, one of the uh, customs or practices in, in, in the Roman Empire that was different from what the, the Jews were used to, and he knew that, but he was speaking to the Romans. And he knew about this custom that they had where a wealthy, childless couple would adopt a pre-adolescent man or young, young man, uh, young, even young adult into their family so that they could learn the business and be able to take it over and manage and oversee it and grow it after they were gone. And that's what Paul used that term And that's what he wants us to realize. It's not an adoption into the, into the family of God. We're born into the family of God. That's what being born again is. We're born into the family, but we are in the process of growing. And one day, one day, if we have that vision, if we're holding on to that vision, there will come a day when we will reach the place where the father will say, well done, good and faithful servant, and he will place us in the position of responsibility of sonship. And that means a responsibility for the the administration of the kingdom of God. When Jesus came preaching the kingdom, he was opening the door of, of himself, to the kingdom of God. But he knew that although many would enter, only a few would actually inherit it. To inherit the kingdom, one must learn, accept, and demonstrate now responsibility for relatively small things to be found fit for managing the kingdom under the kingship of Christ. This means not only taking responsibility in our secular life, 
but also the church. And that brings us to this last phase, and that is the administration or government in the kingdom. Time is short, and I know that most of you are familiar with the structure of the church, so we're not going to go into that. But I will say this. There are lots of places that you can go to church, but I am sure of this, that the structure that God has revealed to us in this move of the Spirit is the order and structure of the millennial kingdom of Christ. We may not be perfect in its operation yet, but the design is perfect. I want to emphasize how important every member is and how important their ministry is to the health and growth of the church. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for edifying of itself in love. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. The design will not work as it's supposed to if the above scripture is not followed. I challenge you to bring your friends to church. You all know that the scripture makes clear that a person's spiritual gifts and ministries are made known through prophecy and the laying on of the hands of the presbytery or a body of elders. This takes man totally out of the picture. There is no congregational voting on what your gift or ministry is. The elders don't know what they are. They merely serve as conduits through which God has the total say. In 1 Timothy 4, 12 through 15, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine, Do not neglect the gift that is in you which was given to you by prophecy and the laying on of the hands of the elders. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. 1 Timothy 4, 12 through 15. Romans 1 and 11 says, Paul says, for I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end ye may be established. The gifts and ministries that are received through prophecy will establish you. It makes a a specific place for you in the body of Christ. In Proverbs 18 and 16, it says, A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. It's our gift and ministries that are really what's important to the body of Christ. When we minister those things, then the body grows and we help each other grow up into that place where we can become mature And the Holy Spirit is responsible for doing that. 
He's orchestrating that in the body of Christ. We want all of you to have the experience of having prophecies made over you to receive your spiritual gifts and to know your ministries in the body of Christ and to be established in the body. But when God gives you gifts, he will hold you accountable for using them. If you desire to be prayed over, begin even now to demonstrate your faithfulness to attend and participate in your local assembly. That's one of the things the brethren will be looking for because they want to know you're serious about this and you're ready that when you receive, you're ready to take responsibility for exercising those gifts and ministries. 1 Peter 2 and 5 says, You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In our natural maturing process, we must learn to take on and faithfully execute responsibility as adults in society. The same is true spiritually. As maturing sons and daughters of God, we must take on responsibility in the church also. I hope that you will spend some time seeking God about that vision that he has described to us. He says, without that vision, we will get off track. Well, if we keep that vision, it's the it's the vision of what is to come. Just think about what it will be like when Jesus comes and establishes that visible kingdom on the earth. And he will make everything back like it was in the very beginning. Just to think about that is so exciting, I can hardly believe it. And it is during the difficult times remembering that that is coming and he wants us to have a part in it is what gets us through the difficult times. So just remember that if you don't remember anything else. God bless you and thank you for your kind attention. If you would like more information about the moving of God's spirit or resources for your spiritual life, please visit our website at www.globalmissionsinc.org. Dot org.